Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. TJ Sharp is a stage four melanoma patient who shares his journey through cancer in the patient number one blog. He was diagnosed in August 2012 with melanoma tumors and multiple organs four weeks after his son was born, undergoing six surgeries and four immunotherapy treatments over two clinical trials. TJ, thank you so much for sharing your story today. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here. I appreciate you giving me a chance to tell other patients what it's like. Yeah, well, they're, they're going to benefit so much from it. So can you take us back, um, just so the audience knows, the ones watching and listening, I do know you, I know a little bit about your story, but I did not know four weeks after your son was born. That part, I didn't know at all. Was this your first child? This was our second child. So I had a two and a half year old girl. And, oh, goodness. And, and when I went in the hospital, Tommy was exactly four weeks old. Wow. So can you take us back to um, how did you even find out that you had melanoma? I came home one day from work uh, with, with, a, with a spiking fever and not feeling well and figured, hey, this is just what happens to a dad with two kids that are two years old and younger. <laughs> uh, and uh, after a few days of a fever spiking, I ended up going to the hospital here in Fort Lauderdale where I live, uh, the same hospital where Tommy was born just four weeks earlier. And the, uh, the nurse took a look at me and said, you know what, we're not just going to get you in and out of here. Something doesn't look right. Uh, thank, uh, thank goodness uh, Nurse Bonnie was, was on it. And the, the, the ER doctor eventually came back and said, look, with your, with your history of melanoma and these spots on a chest x-ray, we think you have a recurrence of your cancer. And I was, I'm like, wait, whoa, whoa. You must have the guy, you know, you're, you're talking about the guy next to me, right? You must have the chart switched or something. Unfortunately, uh, that wasn't the case. He was right. They admitted me, uh, and I was in the hospital for 16 days, uh, lost 30 pounds, had a tumor removed from my stomach or from my small bowel, and had four other tumors spread across my lungs, liver, and spleen. And wait, wait, wait. Got- Take us back. So this was a recurrence? This was a recurrence, yes. I had uh, an early-stage melanoma when I was 25, uh, up here in my clavicle, right over here. And they took it out and said, just be careful because you have a 50% chance of recurrence. And I figured that meant from the sun. When did that happen? Uh, 2000, I was 25 years old. Did you think after five years, you were all good? Yeah, I, mean- I, I thought after, after five weeks, I was all good. And I figured that I was doing the things that were safe. I did all the logical things. I wore sunscreen, I wore hats, long sleeve shirts. Um, I stayed out of the sun in the middle of the day. Now, I did move to Florida in that time, so maybe I didn't do everything right. <laughs> um, but it was it actually, they, they, they tested me, and, it, and the recurrence was from that same melanoma. Uh, it was in my body for 12 years and just had, wow. had stayed there, and my body and immune system had, had done a great job of staving it off, which I mean, in a few minutes we'll talk about my treatments, but it, it made me, a, in a doctor's eyes, a good candidate for this new tr- type of treatments called immunotherapies. The first time you had it, when you were 25, was surgery the only treatment you did? Yes, surgery and follow-up. Just to remove the tumors here, they did the sentinel lymph node biopsy, which means taking lymph nodes out of 
the closest spot. If the cancer would have spread, they would have caught it there. Uh, unfortunately, cancer is a very insidious thing, and it only takes one cell of cancer to stay in your body that goes undetected, which is, um, unfortunately, that's the reality with current technologies is you can't detect every single cancer cell. It's only when, when they mutate and form tumors that you really get a chance to see them uh, in, in scans. So how did you know the first time that you even had melanoma at that early stage? I got really lucky. I had a rash on my foot from my sandals being down the Jersey shore where, where I was living at the time. I went, I went to the dermatologist to get like, just like something for the, for my foot. And my mother and my girlfriend were, were complaining to me, you have to get this little mole checked out. I couldn't even see it. Like it was, it was so far down here. Okay. I couldn't even see it. And I told the guy, like at the end, almost flippantly, hey, just take this off and you shut those, those two ladies up. And he, <laughs> he called me two days later and said, I don't believe everything you read on the internet about melanoma and get to NYU Cancer Center. Oh my God, I just got chills. Oh my goodness, wow. So if it hadn't been for your mother and your girlfriend? Uh, yeah, there's a good chance that there would not be TJ Sharp survivor. <laughs> that, that was, uh, I said, everyone out there, uh, especially you young kids, always listen to your mother. <laughs> I love it. I think that's going to be the pull quote for this episode. There you go. I love it. I love it. So so 2012, four weeks after your son is born, it's come back. Before that fever, did you have any other symptoms? Were you tired? I mean, was there anything? No. Ironically, right the week before he was born, I went to that same ER um, with just some real bad stomach pains. And they gave me Pepto-Bismol and said, you're fine. Uh, and, and that's the difference between, you know, someone, a, a doctor and a nurse who t- take the time to really get in involved. What is really going on here? And the, I can't thank uh, Bonnie and, and Dr. Matt, who I've become really good friends with, um, for really uh, looking into it and saying, all right, that might be something. We need to do some more tests on that. We need to admit you to the hospital. You need to come in here and we're going to find out to make sure you're okay. And not just send me home with... Uh, no, it's just stomach pain. Go, go ahead, go take some Pepto and you'll be fine by the morning. Wow. And so that was a symptom, I'm assuming, since you had tumors. That was, yeah, that was the, the only thing I could have thought of would be a symptom. And it was only a, a month before. So at that point, when I got in there, the tumor in my, my small bowel was, uh, was eight and a half centimeters. So I had that for a while. I just didn't, um, you know, the, the first stuff started showing up right around uh, there. When I do my talks, I, I show a picture. We had that and to have those baby pictures for, for Tommy. And I remember feeling like, like I felt awful. And this is probably about uh, two weeks, you know, so about halfway between him being born and me going to the hospital. And I, I felt like I was hungover. I felt like I had drank too much. <laughs> All I had done was get up, go to work, and come back and, and do baby pictures. And I was exhausted. Um, but that did, to me, that was just a sign of being a, a dad, uh, mm-hmm. of a young kid who's up and and a, a family that's growing and, and multiple responsibilities. This is just what dads do. And everyone gets a little tired once in a while. You try to get some rest on the weekend and have a cup of green tea in the morning. And never thinking that, that, that uh, tumors will be growing inside you and trying to kill you. Um, how was it for your wife during that time when you were in uh, the hospital? It uh, Difficult to say the least. Um, I know she, and I, and I think even today that, that I don't always fully appreciate in, in many senses of the word, what that time for her was like, uh, what the time for a lot of people were like, and, you know, I know I have a friend that tells me my, my, my friend, 
uh, who's really helped me get on, on my, on both of my treatments. Um, he goes, you know, you, you miss the conversations we had and you miss the, the heart just being not distraught, but just so un didn't know what to do. And here she's trying to raise a family. She's certainly has, has hormones that are, that are still kind of settling down from giving birth. And now you're about to, you know, the, uh, the oncologist tells her that her husband's going to be dead in two years. The oncologist said that. Uh, the exact quote was, I'll be surprised if your husband's here in two years. Oh my goodness. And, and that's the, the best part is, is that I, every year when we send out Christmas cards, the very first card I write out is to that guy. Do you really? <laughs> he gets a card for me every year. I have to follow. This was the first year his card got returned in 2020, which of course it's 2020. So uh, it, it was the 2019 card, but the 2020 comes back and goes, this is going to be a weird year, I guess, because he, he, he must have moved practices. I'll find him. Don't worry. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> he, one of my favorite things, I, and I'll, I don't want to skip ahead, but um, I, I did write a blog uh, to him two years later. I, I mailed it to him. One of the things that I did was write blogs about my journey. We'll talk about it in a second. Um, and I said, you know, here's what you didn't know. You know, when you gave me that, you basically said, here's chemotherapy without giving me an option for clinical research without really doing your homework on what was my potentials, even if it wasn't with you. I mean, you were right. ready to give me chemotherapy and that wasn't the right choice. I would have, had I followed his instructions, I probably would have, it probably would have been a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, so let's talk about that now. Um, Cause you know, as, as a caregiver, I'm particularly interested in this. So I think it's six surgeries, immunotherapy. Um, how do you even get there? I mean, those 16 days in the hospital, did you have surgeries during that time? I had my first surgery there uh, uh, to remove the, the, the one big tumor on the small mm -hmm. bowel. Uh, but then there was a number of the surgeries that followed up with the next couple, with the next, mostly with the next trial. Um, I had a colostomy bag for two and a half years because of bad luck, for, uh, you know, for lack of a better word. I had to get a tumor removed from my, my lung to do the, the the first trial. So I had one surgery with the initial cancer. And then the other surgeries were as a result of, or part of the treatment I was going to undertake. That first treatment was, was really intense. The end of this, I had one surgery to remove a, a tumor that started to grow, even as I was getting better everywhere else. How did you end up doing immunotherapy? How did that happen? And not chemotherapy? Uh, I had a lot of people guide me um, to what was it was sort of the, the cutting edge of what was going on in melanoma. The, the friend I mentioned earlier, he's, he's nicknamed Ninja. And I think everyone who has cancer needs a ninja. You need to have yeah. a ninja out there looking for treatment for you. I, I know that you've gone through this with, with your sister. Now, he was the one that really spearheaded him and my brother kind of tag team on the, what's available. What's, what options do we have? What is not approved but is really promising? And I just got extremely lucky that immunotherapy at that time was just about to kind of take over the, the, the world of cancer treatment. You can hear all about it now, but in 2012, it was still uh, on the fringes. Uh, Yervoy, which was a, one of the cancer, one of the melanoma drugs, uh, had just been approved uh, within the last year. Uh, and now there was these, these two anti-PD-1 drugs that were first, first, you know, they were literally on their first trial. And the melanoma community started giving, you know, started hearing about how patients were responding. They were responding quick. They were responding 
well, they were responding with very little toxicity, you know, very few side effects. I'm so impressed because it sounds like your friend and your brother have um, what academics would call a high PAM score, a high patient activation measure score, right? And, or what I would just call that they're just natural advocates. Um, so why is that? Did they have experience in the medical field? I mean, how did they even know to go look for a research study? Uh, they did not have experience in the medical field. Um, they, I, I think it was really uh, blue collar design. They obviously love me, I guess. Um, so uh, they wanted to keep me around for a little while longer. And they, they were diligent and they, they didn't rest and they questioned. Um, you know, my, 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 my friend uh, works in finance uh, and does investment banking related stuff and his you know, his approach was to treat this as he would if he was going to look up, you know, the, the technology stuff that he, he follows. And he found the right person that said, look, this is immunotherapy is what's kind of come through. And it's showing so much promise because cancer care at that point and melanoma care, especially we're, we're reliant on these therapies that, you know, when you're in stage four, that showed such little promise. You know, nine out of 10 people, with my diagnosis are, are dead in five years. So they understood that that was, you know, really a non-starter, not with a, not with a two-year-old or a four-week-old. Maybe if I was 75, I would consider it, but that wasn't going to work for me. And I wanted to watch these little kids grow up. They really took the bull by the horns and started making phone calls and reading stuff online, you know, which we, we both know is a, um, is a, is a difficult thing because in 2012, there was nothing like cancer university. They, they had to navigate all this themselves. And there's um, certainly a, a lot of uh, misinformation or bad information out there, um, which is why I'm so passionate about trying to help, help you and, and other patients find good, reliable, right information that can help navigate their ninjas uh, to, the, to, the, to all the treatment possibilities and, and then hopefully make the right decision for them. Oh, well, you are a ninja now, whether you know it or not, you are. Um, so tell us about the first clinical trial. How did it come, how did it come about? What, what did you have to do? What it, was it, um, did you have to leave home to go to the trial? Well, we did. We actually packed up our family and moved from Fort Lauderdale to Tampa area uh, in Florida, about four hours away, uh, which was easy enough to do when you have two little kids. The trial, we, we looked for really good researchers, and I found one down here by near us, and I found... Uh, a world-famous melanoma researcher over in, in, in Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa. He gave me the option of these anti-PD-1 drugs that we're using. We have a trial for that. Or there is this other trial that, that involved Yervoid, like I mentioned before, one of the immunotherapy drugs, and something called TIL, which is uh, it's a T-cell therapy, uh, similar to Chimera and, and some CAR T-cell therapies that, are, that, are, that have been in the news recently in, um, in the last year or two. And it was taking my, my T cells, like a tumor out of me and getting the T cells and finding the best ones that responded to me and putting them back in me uh, after you expand them to like 60 billion of them. Uh, it was really, it, it felt personalized. It felt like they were using my body to really make me healthy. And I, I just embraced that idea. So I said, yeah, I'm like, I'm like, I'm in, uh, sign me up. Yeah. And, and almost as an afterthought, I said, well, I should probably ask how people have done on this before. And, <laughs> and the, the two doctors over there kind of looked at each other and they go, well, as far as we know, you're the first person to try this in a specific sequence. So wow. 
for me, I take, I'm a pretty positive guy. So I looked at them and I said, you know what? That means no one's ever failed us before. Let's get it done. I love it. And so hence patient number one. Yep. That's where the patient number one blog came from. From my, my brother started, uh, got the, got the idea, went through his company, which was the Philadelphia newspapers and they published it. And then 200 blog posts later, I went from being the first person in this trial to, to talking through my entire cancer journey. Oh my goodness. So what phase of the trial was it then? Was it a phase two at that point? No, it was a phase one. It was so a phase that, one. Wow. So it, it, phase one trials are the very first ones are very small number of, of patients. And they're really just testing to see, you know, what's going to happen with this if we put this in humans. Now I'll give a caveat that the, that what they did on me, everything except for the till part had already been approved and the till was being done other places. They had, the reason that they did it, they kind of took the till and put it in, in the middle of the, the four doses of the year boy. Uh, but it was a, it was sort of that sequencing in there. Uh, another famous melanoma researcher said, you know, we think we have most or all the knowledge that it takes to cure something like melanoma. We just need to know how to match it up in the right, mm. to the right person in the right sequence. Uh, so that was sort of the start of this, you know, something like personalized medicine to see if you can use your body's own immune system uh, to, to really fight cancer, but also figure out maybe some things work for people uh, if, it's sequen- if, it's, if it's B, then A, then B, then C, rather than A, B, C, D. What was your worst moment during all this? Well, there was, there was quite, quite a few. Um, and the, the worst moment besides that that's non-catheter related uh, would, <laughs> would be... I'm not sure if you can keep that in there. Oh, yeah, of course we can. My sister would totally agree with you. So, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> the worst moment was St. Patrick's Day in 2013. Uh, my daughter had just turned uh, three a few weeks earlier, and we had her birthday party on, on, a, on a great little Sunday here in Fort Lauderdale on a park across the street from our house. And... I couldn't do anything. And halfway through it, I had to leave and just, I went home and, and I threw up, which I never, it's the, there's been twice where I've thrown up in, in the story. Once when I, when I was first sick, that's when I knew I had to go to the hospital. And then I threw up. Um, I never threw up for the, 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 I did have a small bit of chemo. I never threw up for the immunotherapy. I never threw up for anything. And I go back and I throw up and then I just kind of lay down in bed and pass out. And I missed like the second half of her birthday party. And I remember waking up and thinking like, is this it? Like, is this all I'm going to get? And, and it was weird, Angela. Something just, something just kind of got me up. Like it was like, like an hour and 15, an hour and 17 minutes after I laid down. And I looked at the clock and it was, it was 3.17 on March 17th. And I, I don't know, it's just like one of those things where I'm like, somebody's got to be telling me something here. Like you've got to get up. And like that day that gave me the perspective that I'm not going to, I can't beat cancer overnight. And that's probably something that, that whoever's listening can, um, can maybe relate to as they go on their journey is that there's going to be days that cancer wins and it sucks, but tomorrow is a new day. And if you get up every morning and say, all right, today's the day I'm not going to let cancer win, then you're approaching the day, your disease, your healthcare journey with a positive attitude and a way to make sure that those days that you have, however many they will be if there are dozens or hundreds or thousands that they they're meaningful and i've tried to do that every day that i've gotten up since then oh god that's so beautiful tj i love it i do um what was your best moment 
besides sending the, the, the blog to that, to that first guy I told you about, uh, I think the best moment was, the one of the best moments might have been writing that blog, um, not so much to, as to, you know, you know, ha-ha, I'm still here, but as an educational thing, like, this is what you didn't know. I remember when I walked into, so I had, to, had a, a tumor started growing when I was on my second trial, and we did a PET scan. I read the PET scan report ahead of time, of course, because I can access it, and I walked in, and the doctor looked at me and goes, you read your report, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, he's like, look, because I can tell you're smiling. And he goes, look, I'm not going to tell you you don't have cancer. What I'm going to tell you is that tomorrow I'm going to remove all the cancer we can detect from you with the current available technology. And that at that point, at least for that moment, you can probably consider yourself cancer free. Uh, so that was, that was even, even that was the, that was the moment. That was like that turning point moment, the tipping of the scales. Because we, at that point, we weren't sure if, if the medicine had stopped working completely and things were spreading. And then all of a sudden in a couple, you know, like a day and a half, the, the, the PET scan shows nothing is growing except for this one spot that was picked up on a CT scan. So for, for those of you who are new, uh, you'll hear different types of scans. A CT scan is, is one technology and it just detects things that are growing in size, but a PET scan detects activity. And what they showed was that my cancer cells that were still showing up on the CT scan is there there was no activity. They were basically dead, except for this one spot. That meant that really, they, and then and, and these aren't these aren't crazy cancer cells where they start growing back from the dead. They're not zombie cancer cells. <laughs> they're they're necrotic cells, and they're they're just they're just waste cells that are in your body that are just stuck there. And we, my wife Jen and I, looked at each other like, "Holy!" It was it was that moment. So when I got yeah. this when I got the scam report like a year and a half later, when they finally said that they don't think I had any active cancer. At that point, I'd already considered myself cancer-free. Like that's a, the moment I used was in 2017. But really, you know, that, that all started um, in, in August of 2014. So six years ago, right about now, because we, we had the surgery um, on Jen's birthday, which is the 24th. So, so all this happened in the month of August, six years ago. Did the doctor ever use the words cure? I'm just curious. No, and I don't think, um, not in a context of specifically. Uh, I've done a lot with cancer research, obviously. It's where you and I uh, met, and you know that as advocates, we do a lot with uh, doctors who use the word cure in the abstract sense. Uh, no one ever said to me, you are cured. But I've heard a lot of doctors say that we are curing cancer, we are curing patients, with these new immunotherapy drugs. And I'm thinking like, well, all right, I'm a patient. <laughs> I'm on immunotherapy drugs. I don't have any cancer. I go, oh, I'm not sure of the boxes I need to check. Uh, there was one time that the same doctor who said that they, that they could cure, they've got all the stuff they need to cure cancer. I asked him at one point, I just got to sit next to him at, at a melanoma conference. And he's the only one that actually addressed that with me. And he said, you know what? If because I asked him about stopping the, I still stayed on the trial uh, anti PD one drug for almost two years after that, after that the the story I just told you, and he said, you know what, if you were my patient, I'd probably consider you cured, and that was the only time someone told me said that to me. Everyone mm -hmm. else has been, uh, you know how oncologists speak; they're very measured, and they they believe cancer can be a disease treated, but is never necessarily cured in, in its late stage. Um, he's the only one, and he's a pretty smart guy, so uh, I, I chose to believe his word over everybody else's. So. <laughs> you 
you know, measured is the perfect word. It is. They're very careful and measured with how they say things. So, um, so I think it's amazing that he did say that. So how do you look at your life differently now than before that moment when it came back? Uh, it is, it's been, uh, I, probably the biggest word is uh, purpose. Um, and I think you can relate to this as well, that sometimes you're given a purpose that you've never necessarily asked for and probably don't want, <laughs> <laughs> but you have now. And, mm. you know, I, ha I have that purpose of helping others. And the, uh, I remember when I was first in the hospital, um, uh, my, my, my grandmother had passed away when my dad was in his, when he was, when he was in high school. I remember waking up from some, God, I don't know what it was, colonoscopy or something, something fun. And I was all groggy and I'm like, dad, and like, you know, when I'm done with this crap, you know, I want to make a difference in someone's life. And, and, and I didn't know what the heck that meant at the time. It was just the, the, the delusions of someone coming, coming out of, uh, out of, out of a surgery or, or coming off of, um, the, the happy juice they give you, <laughs> but it, it, re it really ended up being something that drove me. And I, I would like to sit here and say that I, I, I never take anything for granted and I wake up every day thankful that I'm here and I, and I am so pleasant. Guess what? I'm not, <laughs> I, I, there are days that I'm back to being the, uh, the person that, that is normal and, and can have cranky days. Yes. My kids, they get yelled at, <laughs> you know, there's, Ask my wife, I'm a, I'm a pain in her butt. And there are times where I'm just human. Um, but I think resetting myself with some of that purpose sometimes really gives me the, the uh, perspective of I need to be a good person here for everyone, for the people that are in this house, my family and friends that are around the country and the world. And for those people who are going to be in a doctor's office or in a certain you know, in surgery or a hospital and here you have cancer, you know, that's the purpose that I have. And that really drives me to, uh, to professionally and in, in, in advocacy to, to be better. This is one of my favorite questions to ask. What is the one thing that you wish you had known at the very beginning of your cancer journey? And I'll let you choose whether it's the beginning of the beginning or when it came back in 2012. What's the one thing you wish you had known? The one thing I wish I would have known was to uh, ask for help. I'm someone who likes to do everything myself. And I, I mentioned before my brother and, and my ninja, uh, how, how much they helped. Um, but there were people that I didn't know that had the ability and, and the insights to really give me some good, uh, uh, some good direction. Mm. Uh, I, I don't want to, I didn't want to bother anybody. I didn't want to, you know, there was, oh, my aunt had cancer, as someone would say, or my brother is, a, is an oncologist. And, and I, I just didn't want to pick up the phone and randomly cold call somebody. And I didn't realize how much the people that are involved in cancer research and advocacy, like you and I are, who dedicate their lives and, and hours every day just so that someone else will have a better experience. Someone else will have less pain. Some of their family won't feel some of the things that you and I felt. I wish I would have known that because I would have picked up the phone. I would have talked to somebody and, and maybe I would have found something like Cancer University to help me educate me on uh, cancer is more than just a biological disease. There are people out there that, like you and I, that are eager for someone to pick up the phone, not because we want someone else to have cancer, 
but because that gives us an opportunity to help someone else, to help you, the person who's listening to this right now. Yeah. Uh, do not feel bad to ask for help. Do not feel like you're putting someone out. Uh, reach out to the people who've um, been very public about their journey, especially, because for us, this is a way for us to pay it forward. And for the, I could never thank everyone that helped me along my journey, but I will do everything I can to take all of those positive vibes that I got, and I got so many, and I'm going to put them into every person that I meet that has this cancer battle from now until uh, whenever, whenever that until is. Ah, that's amazing. Um, all right. So if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? And so far, so far, no one has said the same thing. So I'm always okay. excited by um, people's answers to this question. Okay. So I, I'm going to, my one thing is going to be like, like a several part, one thing that I promise you all relates together. <laughs> so you're cheating, really. <laughs> if you ever saw the, the Rodney Dangerfield movie, Back to School. Oh uh, yeah, of course. I, I only have one question in 57 parts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leverage that just a little tiny okay, bit. Okay, all right. Um, but my, my one thing that I would change is that there is a, I don't use single because it's the, that evokes single payer, evokes universal health care, which is a completely separate um, thought process. If I could make, wave a magic wand and change one thing, it would be that there would be a single or a central um, place for me to see everything medically that has ever happened to me. And for every doctor and every healthcare um, professional to be able to access whatever records I want to give them access to. So if I want to see, here's my whole medical records, go see it. Here's my cancer specific stuff. Here's what I did in my clinical trial. You can, you know, uh, a la carte pick and choose, or you can just check the little box that says select all. And now it's sent over to someone you're going to go see for, maybe just general practitioner. Maybe you're going to see a specialist that needs to understand what your health history is. So one, I don't have to fill out all those stupid little forms over and over again, checking boxes. Yeah. But, but two, it will solve for so many people the things that get missed, the medicines that get mixed up, because we know that's a, that's a huge problem. There's, there's, there's issues between medicines on trial and medicines that are being taken just as a, as a person. There's a big gap between the records you have from a clinical trial, the records you have at a doctor, or and heck, even just between two doctors, where the medical systems are different. Um, and with, uh, I'm starting a, a new chapter in my career uh, next week, and that's one of the areas I get to address: is how do we, how do we make everything, not just talk to each other, but be at the patient's fingertips, just like our iPhones. And the, right. The, the, that was and all of a sudden we have our email and our calendar and and everything that that. You know, that, that maybe BlackBerry started, you know, at one point and Outlook started before that. It was just the next evolution in pulling things together. To me, if I could change one thing, I would change that, that the ability to, to access and then access information. And then from that, for both patients on, on a, lay, a lay level, you know, a very basic level, and then healthcare professionals on a professional level, uh, make sense out of information easily. It's not just data, but there's insights. There is um, information that ties to one another. You can also now start to see that you have 
these conditions or taking these medications and, and you have this blood work and, and there's intelligence behind that that we've you know, just scratched the surface on, on tapping. Uh, but that will allow things like personalized medicine that I talked about earlier, that will allow the potential future cancer patient to say, well, here, you know, you know, here's everything I have. Here's my medical record. And the doctor can look at it and say, you know what? Based on, on all your past history and the things that you have right now, potentially that are, that are comorbidities, other, other diseases you may have or you know, high blood pressure, whatever it is, we're finding that, that, that the person is most like you responds to this medicine the best. And here's, okay. here's other options that, that maybe you should consider or not consider because they, they might not be the best fit for you. If we can turn all of that random data into knowledge for a specific person in a specific place, the right person uh, and the right medication at the right time, that would be my, you know, my one wish for Jamie. I, I love that answer, and no one has said that yet. And God, I hope know, not. I, That'd be a long answer. And I, you know, I think electronic health records were trying to do something like that, right? And they, I think, my personal opinion, they failed miserably. And the best example I have is a personal one where I was at a doctor's office seeing a specialist, and they could not access a test that I had gotten like the week or two before from the same hospital, same healthcare system, same network, and the doctor was one floor below in the same building. But because they used different EHRs, they had no access whatsoever. And this has happened multiple times now to me where I'm just floored. I'm like, you guys are, you're, you're one floor apart, same network, same... I don't understand. And it's just because, well, these people, you know, decided to go with this EHR and these people, and there's no just one standard. Um, I do know several entrepreneurs and companies that are trying to solve this problem, but um, but I think the way you just framed it, it's, it's even bigger than that. Um, and also just really allowing people access to their data. And so they can see patterns. Um, Wow, that's 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 big. I like that. Um, there, there's a lot to that. That can be a whole half a day session at one of the conferences I go to because it is, you know, it is it is what's the thing like eating you know eating the elephant one bite at a time. Uh, there's no way to solve all of it right away, and if you do, you'll never be successful. But like you said, there are people that are really, really trying to make these different problems solvable, and if right. we can get things solvable, then we can all of a sudden start talking the same language. Like, you know, I'm sure there's millions of examples in other industries that, you know, banking and ATMs, you know, the first ATMs never talked to each other. And guess what? Now you get an ATM around the world and get your money out. So it's, it's possible. It's right. just not easy. Right. Yeah. All right. Are you ready for the rapid fire questions? Go ahead. All right. I always have fun with this. Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach, because we live four blocks from the beach. And it's, <laughs> and it's, it's a weird answer because I'm, I'm, if I go to the beach, I have to be in like long sleeve shirts and all. But there's something about the ocean that as much as I love the mountains draws me to it. I, I, I love the ocean too. Um, and I'm always completely covered from head to toe. So um, beach boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Ah, oh, beach boys. My first concert ever when I was a kid. Really? The Beach mm-hmm. Boys? Oh, I, and yeah, I like Beach Boys too. Uh, what is one word that best describes you? I like to say resilient. Okay, I like it. Um, before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Uh, he Went to Paris by Jimmy Buffett. 
I don't know if you know it, but it describes the life of someone who had all these adventures and he looks, reflects back on his life and says, some of it's magic and some of it's tragic, but I had a good life all the way. Oh, that's a great line. Um, last meal he went to eat. Some pasta dish, uh, <laughs> lobster or pasta or spaghetti and crabs. <laughs> uh, last person you want to see. My great grandkid. Oh, okay. I love your thinking. Um, last words you will speak. Remember me. Hmm. And aside from Cancer U, what is one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? Online uh, support groups, someone like, uh, like Stupid Cancer or Cancer Communities, Any, anything out there that, that finds your tribe. First Ascent is one that I love, um, uh, but someplace where you can connect to somebody else that knows exactly what you're going through. What was the one you mentioned? First Descent and Stupid Cancer. And if people want to get in touch with you, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, you can, I guess it probably wouldn't be the best thing to put cell phone numbers out there, but uh, you can always reach me. My, my website, which will eventually undergo its revisions, uh, is www.tjsharp.com. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter uh, at Team TJ Sharp. It's S-H-A-R-P-E. And on Facebook, uh, patient number one. TJ, thank you so much for sharing your story today. Oh, Andrew, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure. I, I, I just put a post out there that said eight years ago today, I walked out of that hospital. Uh, that, was, that was today. And now I get to do something for somebody else that's going to hear those words. going to be walking into that hospital. And I just hope whoever's listening uh, can get a little bit of hope and inspiration from what I've gotten, gotten to do. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you, Angie. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university and hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.